We're going to be in Galatians chapter 3 this morning. Uh, the last several weeks, um, I feel like the um, I feel like God's had us in the right right parts of the Bible at the right time, and it's, it was just like it was kind of a grind, you know, like um, all the controversies in the temple with Jesus and all the religious leaders, and dealing with things with the election and being a peacemaker and all that, and so. Um, Advent starts on the 29th, and so th- today and next week, we're just going to kind of shift gears and kind of start ramping up to Advent, which is a a season of waiting for Christmas, um, and just kind of really, I see these things as these next two weeks as really just being an encouraging reminder, and so this will be lighter, and uh, no no uh, no getting into the, the deep end necessarily with some of the cultural things. This is going to be a lot about us as God's kids, and um, the uh, I, I preached through this same passage like five years ago, and um, I, I, I'm sure no one's going to remember that. So uh, I'm kind of going back to the, to the well again for for some older stuff. But I was thinking about this um, this whole idea that we'll talk about today. The first time it occurred to me, there was a song that we we came across. Uh, many moons ago, and uh, it became just one of the one of our the favorite songs when when the ring was a college ministry, and uh, we uh, the the musicians got booked to lead worship for a whole summer in Panama City Beach for Centrifuge. And so we immediately saw that as the will of God. Uh, and so we uh, said, yes, we'll spend a summer there in Panama City. And we recorded a, a, an album, like a live worship thing that we took and uh, to kind of be a part of the whole camp experience. And so over the course of that summer, uh, like between two and 3,000 of these CDs went kind of scattered around the southeast of the United States, which is not a lot of CDs, but uh, it was to us, it was a huge deal. It was not a great recording. Don't try to find it. It's just really not very good, but it was the best we could afford and we had a good time, right? So, but this song is really obscure. And um, so we do the summer thing, we come back. So about six months later, I get a phone call from this guy that I've never, I don't know who this is. He's like, I need you to call me back. I got a good story to tell you. So I call the guy back, and he is the songwriter for this for one of these really obscure songs on the record. And we couldn't even find this guy; is how obscure he is and the song. Um, and so he said that he was. Uh, he said, I, I, sh- "I go to lead worship at this youth thing, and it's like a bunch of churches together. It's like two hundred teenagers." And uh, he says, so I go to teach them this song thinking they don't know it. And as soon as I start singing it, it was like this choir just started singing. They all knew it. They went crazy. And I was like, how do y'all know this song? And they're like, we learned it at camp. And he was like, oh, that's pretty cool. So they do the song and um, they, you know, at some point over the weekend, a couple of these teenage boys come up to him and they're like, they're like, hey, dude, uh, you know, you're singing that song wrong, right? And he's like, what do you, what do you mean? I, I. I wrote this, I wrote the song. Uh, they're like, no, man, that's not how it goes. And they take it our, like, this is how it goes. <laughs> and turns out that uh, we got the words wrong because the band that we heard do it, they got the words wrong. Their name is Mercy Me. And so I blame Mercy Me. Uh, they got the words wrong, so we got the words wrong. They got his name wrong, so we got his name wrong. And so he's trying to convince these teenagers that actually the way he wrote it is how it goes. But they're like, no, we know how it goes. And it was this whole debate. And so he called to tell me that and to ask for his royalties. So um, 
But the song, the song was called Adopted, and some of you might remember it. And I'd never, ever thought about, just in my whole, like, growing up in church, I'd never thought about, like, what it means to become a part of God's family and the connection to adoption as we think of it. Um, and then one day I realized, like, oh, that's in the Bible. That's not just, like, this, like, metaphor someone grabbed onto. It's, like, in the scriptures. So we're going to look at that, that, that idea from God's word uh, today and next week. Um, kind of from different perspectives. So we're in Galatians 3, starting in verse 23. It says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith, uh, uh, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Okay, so we're just going to go a little bit at a time. Um, so he's talking about faith and, the, but, and faith and the law and how those two things are a part of the story of Israel. So he is, he's addressing a group of, of believers that have come to know Christ. They were, they were Jewish and now they're Christians. And uh, he has discipled them and developed them in, in the gospel and he has moved on. And then some, uh, some heretical teachers have come in and tried to kind of mix, the, mix aspects of the Jewish faith in with Christianity, telling them that there's certain rules that they still have to keep. Even though Paul has told them, uh, has taught them that the gospel has freed them from those laws. And so the laws, it's, it's the Mosaic law. It's the, the first five books of the Bible. And we talked about that uh, over the last several weeks in different capacities. It's a, it's a mixture of social laws and religious laws. Uh, the Ten Commandments being like kind of a, like a, like a summary. And that's kind of the more known part of it. But really it, it breaks into hundreds of other laws to keep Israel structured. And, um, and so Paul has been discipling them, telling them, you are free from that law. You don't have to keep doing those things. You don't have to keep the sacrificial system and all that stuff. Um, but yet these teachers have come in and, and said, well, actually you kind of do, he's wrong. And, and they've, they've kind of come in and, and done to, uh, to the, the church there in Galatia what those teenagers did to that songwriter. They come in and said, actually, you're getting it wrong. And he's like, no, actually, I'm getting it right. And so there's this tug of war that's going on. And so Paul's trying to clear up some things. And so you look again at verse 23. Um, he says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Now, what is, what is faith? What, what does that mean? That's, that is essentially saying before Jesus came and before God changed, like, like brought in a, a new covenant, uh, which, which is about faith in the Messiah and not the laws that you had to keep before that happened. Yes, we were under the law, but it was our, it was holding us captive. Uh, then he says that we were imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. Um, and then verse 24, so then the law was our guardian. And when you see that word guardian, uh, N.T. Wright, he says you can, you can actually take that word and it kind of means the same thing as a babysitter uh, in the Greek. Like it is, uh, it is the, he's essentially saying Israel uh, was not mature in their faith. So they needed rules. They needed boundaries. They needed a guardian 
Just like your kids need rules rules in the house, they need rules at school, they need structure, they need guardians. That's why you don't just just leave them when they're really little by themselves to fend for themselves. Like you have a uh, someone come and watch them, you know, those, those kinds of things. So he's trying to help them understand that the law served a function before Christ came. And did a couple of things. It was their guardian. So um, one of the things that the law was there for was was to uh, to keep them from destroying themselves you know that's what a lot of our social laws do now right there are are things that we that are legal and illegal so that we don't just completely implode as a society like we there there has to be a remnant Otherwise, you know, movies like The Purge would just be like the way that it is, you know. And so um, we we have these rules and we have those those things in place. And so a part of why he gave the law was so that um, there would be a civilized society so that you know how to treat each other and how to handle disputes. And so that uh, families could be created so that generations could grow so that the nation could do what a nation needs to do. Um, but another part of it especially the, the religious part, in particular the Ten Commandments, that was there, like kind of a, section, uh, a second um, function of the law was to expose their sinful nature and to show them that they were in need of redemption. Um, and so you take the Ten Commandments, one of them is, is to not uh, steal, right? Not, to not murder. Um, and what that does is that exposes the fact that we like to steal things. And that there are people who, who would, like, that would be their solution to something else is to murder, you know. Um, it, it's, it's kind of one of those things where uh, you don't realize that you want something until someone says that you can't have it. And then suddenly you, you want that thing. And so the, the law was there as a, as a, to help to make them look in the mirror and to realize, like, you, your problem is not external. Your problem is not your behavior. Your problems originate from within yourself, he says, if you think I'm wrong, I'm going to give you 10 rules for you to keep. And let's see if you can keep them. And they couldn't do 10. And so it not only helped keep, like, keep the boundaries and the levees in place for their society, it was also forcing them to look like, why, what is this thing within me? Why do I want to dishonor my parents? Why do I, why do I want to lie to people? Why do I want to uh, cre- like create an idol and worship it? What is, what is going on within me? Um, because God was telling them over and over again, your problem is not external, it's internal. But they didn't believe him, so he gave them rules to keep. And it was also a way of training them. The third, the third kind of big idea is training them in what the kingdom of God looks like. Uh, the Ten Commandments are essentially uh, expressions of love. And so he's helping them see this is, what, this is what the kingdom looks like. This is what my people, this is how my people are going to function. He's training them in, in not only in, in how to worship the Lord and to love the Lord, but also how to love their neighbors and what hospitality looks like and all these things. And so it's doing all these things at once. It's, 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 it's keeping society within the rails. It's exposing their own broken, their internal brokenness because they weren't convinced. Um, and it's training them in what the kingdom of God looks like so that when, when the Messiah does come, everything that he's saying is resonating because they're saying like, yes, we have been uh, trying to figure out how do we fix this broken problem within us, you know? And how can we be a, a nation that really does live the way that you've told us? It's like, it's like we can't really get there on our own. And he's like, yes, exactly. 
And so he's kind of setting the stage. He's saying before, before faith in Christ came, before the one faithful Israelite that could ever keep the law came, before the Messiah came, uh, you were under a guardian. You had a babysitter that was known as the law. Um, and there comes a point where your kids get old enough where they don't need an outside babysitter coming over. And all the firstborns know what that's like, right? You get to the point where you become the babysitter and uh, you don't get paid like the other babysitters got paid. You get to eat. And so that's, you know, compensation enough. And so what he's telling them is Israel has gotten to a point where faith can replace those rules that the guardian, the guardian can go away. And now you are trustworthy enough, you are mature enough to be able to place your faith in this figure of the Messiah. Um, So look at verse 25. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Isn't Isn't that beautiful? Like you're like now that Christ has come, everything is different. Absolutely everything is different. Verse 27. For as many of you uh, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Okay, you're bap- you're baptized, or what do we do when we baptize someone? We we submerge them. We've like trust me, I'm the one that doing do it most of the time. You force them under the water. They don't want to go under the water necessarily. And so you're baptized into Christ, that through Christ you've said like literally like I want to be uh, immersed in you will you take me and will you plunge me in into your own life and he says when that has happened you are entering into a completely new situation and here's what it what there's what the result of that when you emerge from those waters uh, verse 28 there's neither Jew nor Greek there's neither slave nor free there's no male and female for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So he says, when, when you are part of the family, there are all these descriptors that in our, in our brokenness, under that, that uh, caretaker, under the law, we have used all those descriptors to separate Right to put ourselves into different categories, and then to make a hierarchy out of those, because that's a reflection of our brokenness. When we look in the mirror, when you look at the mirror of human history, that's what we're real. One of the things we're super good at is let's take a group that should be very, like, very much all on the same page, and let's make a caste system out of it. You know, that's why we're dealing with the sins of uh, of racism and. Uh, sexism and gender stuff and that's why we're dealing with all these things now because that's what humans are really good at is finding a way to make a hierarchy and all that kind of stuff and what he's saying is when you become a part of the family of god all those things that humanity uses to segregate and to make that caste system and all that kind of stuff all of those things are really they go away in the kingdom of god like they're still describing us, right? We're still we're still male and female, Jew and Greek. Uh, like all the, all those things are still describing us, but they're not putting some up here and some down here. They're just saying, "Isn't it cool how diverse this this like family thing is?" And that's why he says in that last verse, "If you're Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs to his promise." And what does that m- mean? Let me let me tell you a story 
And if you don't remember me preaching on this five, six years ago, that's, you, you might remember this. Okay, let me show you a picture. Um, this is a picture of, uh, of a door. That has a gate. And you can kind of see it. Our projector is not awesome, but that's a, that's a gate with a box on it. And if you were to walk up to this gate and you were to pull, you were to take where it says door of hope, you can pull that forward and it's an empty box. This is an orphanage in Johannesburg. And several years ago, I got to go on a mission trip with, with uh, a number of Living Hope folks as well. And um, went to this orphanage, and it's called Door of Hope. And we visited the orphanage and uh, talked with the workers there and everything. And um, got to hang out with the kids and just incredible, right? Um, but they told us the story about Door of Hope. And the thing about Door of Hope is that uh, one of the problems in Joburg that was happening is that people were just abandoning babies everywhere. And that sounds like, oh, I can't believe Joburg. But see, America had the same problem. That's why they had to create these policies where you can bring your baby to a hospital or to a fire station or to a police station. Uh, they had to create that because this is a human problem, not just a like, Southern Africa problem. Um, but Southern Africa, had to, they didn't have anything in place like we have put into place. And so this orphanage realized, hey, we need to provide a way for these kids to not end up in dumpsters. And so they started an orphanage and uh, they put a box on their gate and 24 hours a day it is a possibility that someone will come by and open that door and place a baby in there and when the door closes again it signals a little a little bell inside and the workers come out and they open the box and they take the baby and there's no questions asked and the baby comes to live at the orphanage and they begin to raise the child and there's a whole adoption system set up to go uh and uh, within within South Africa, and so um, if you're sitting there being like, "I want one of those babies," uh, you can't you can't have one of those babies. But there's lots of other babies that need adoption as well uh, in our own country. But you can't; these are not babies that can come out of the country. It's kind of the way that they do things. But and I remember us all standing there and looking at this box, you know, and you can look at it now, and. You think about the change of trajectory in a child's life when they go through that door and into that box and into that orphanage. Um, their entire lives are different. Um, that's why it's called Door of Hope. And when I think about what, what Paul is communicating here, He's saying you were under a guardian and now that faith has come you have placed your faith in Christ you've been baptized into Christ you've gone through the door and what's on the other side of that door changes everything about you. You will never be the same. And so I think what they're doing is incredible. And there are things just like this happening in our own country, state, and city. And if that stirs stuff within you, let's talk afterwards because there's a lot of, a lot of options. And really, uh, that is something we as Christians should be all about because that's a picture of our story. Like that, that is what the gospel is doing. 
That when you're baptized into Christ, you're baptized into, into a whole new family. You go through the door of hope and you become an heir. And so in verse, in chapter four, he talks more about what it means to be an heir. So let's look at chapter four as well. Look at verse one. I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, he's no different than a slave, though he's the owner of everything. Okay, now, now we see the word slave, we think American slavery. Um, and that certainly, like that, that same concept of ownership and violence uh, existed back, that's not something that we created, like that goes way back. And so sometimes in the Bible, it could be referring to that, but most of the time in the New Testament, uh, it's talking more, more in the realm of either uh, someone who has become a, a servant in a situation in order to pay off a debt, or someone who's like an employee, you know. So someone working in a field uh, as an employee or to pay off a debt would also, it's kind of the same word that can apply in different contexts. There are times when it's talking about slavery like we think of it, but sometimes it's more like, like uh, of just of saying uh, like an employee, that kind of stuff. But the point of the verse is not to distinguish between those. Look at, it says, um, as long as an heir is a child, he's no different from a servant in the, in the household, even though he owns everything. Verse two, but he's under a guardian and manager until the date set by his father. Okay. So let's say that you have a big company and there's a bunch of employees. And also the, there's a, the, the owner of the company has kids. He's saying really there's no difference because they're all under a guardianship until there comes a point where the kid is ready to take over the company. And there's a date set by the, by the father when it's time to hand the reins over. That kind of thing. It's saying like really, like being under a guardian, uh, the, the way out of that situation is up to whoever is in charge. And whoever is in charge has set a date, then he gets to determine now who, like now what your new situation looks like. So verse three, in the same way also when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. There's a lot in those verses, and I want to uh, kind of like hack that down into smaller, like uh, more bite-sized pieces. Um, by making like seven kind of statements about adoption um, in terms, in the spiritual sense of adoption. And in every one of them, there's a parallel to uh, like human to human adoption, which I think we should also be embracing. But this will help us kind of understand a little bit more of the theology that Paul is trying to communicate to them. So here's the first, the first thing. Um, there's seven of them. The first one is adoption is planned and executed. Adoption is planned and executed. So you look at verse 2. It says that, the, that the, the heir is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. Like the father plans, plans ahead. And it's like, okay, at this point, I'm a, you know, the, the, my son, my daughter, whoever it is, will be old enough. I'll start to train him and all that kind of stuff. And then at this point, I'm going to retire and hand the company over. You know, that kind of thing. And then verse 4 it says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. So the fullness of time, in other words, God planned the exact time 
when Christ was going to come. So the Advent season that's coming up and, and we celebrate the first arrival of the Messiah and the second arrival of the Messiah, that, that God planned everything out and he, he knew the exact moment in linear time when that was going to happen, when faith was going to come, when the guardian over his children, when that law was going to be set aside because they were now mature enough and ready enough to say, I put my faith in, in the fact that God's the only one that can fix the brokenness within me. This guardian has been showing me my entire life that my brokenness is inside, not outside. And finally, God has come, and so I can put my faith in him. Um, and so adoption is planned and it is executed. Uh, you don't accidentally adopt. You plan it. You carry it out. And for you and for me, I think it's important that, that, that we be reminded. See, because God, like he, he planned for you. Like, make this personal, you know. God plans for you. He, um, and he made it happen at just the right time and in just the right way. Like, the way that you came to faith in Christ might seem really, really random and like, you know, not, but it was strategic on the point of the Lord. Like, I'm talking about, like, like um, from the beginnings of time, he knew how he was going to play chess to get the gospel to you. It came to you on its way to someone else. I've heard that before. And so it's strategic and it's planned. There's nothing random about the fact that you're his son. There's nothing random about the fact that you're his daughter. So adoption is planned and is executed according to that passage. Here's the second thing. Is that adoption is a choice that God made. It's a choice that he made. In verse 4, uh, we'll read verse 4 a lot. Uh, it says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Like God set that into motion. He intentionally made a choice and a conscious decision to adopt you into his family. Just like our earthly adoption, God looked at you and said, You. A conscious decision. Um, and this is, like from another standpoint, this is God uh, taking sh- people who are strangers and making them into a family. I have two nephews who were adopted uh, by my brother and sister-in-law. And uh, they were, they were, they are siblings and they uh, were in foster, foster care. And um, Drew and Catherine fostered them and then adopted them. And, uh, I remember meeting them for the first time, like in, like face to face. And I was like, these kids have no idea who I am. I'm like everybody else, uh, that that's all around us. I'm, uh, I'm like just another, like taller than them person, you know, like, but I'm their uncle, you know, like, and at some point that relationship is going to form and they're going to realize that I'm not like everybody else. Uh, like I have a specific role and, uh, everybody else has a specific role, but right now it's just like a blur to them. They were strangers to me and I was a stranger to them. Um, and now we can FaceTime and it's like right there. They're not like, who's this guy again? Uh, now my youngest nephew, um, uh, he's the, the, the brothers are, the brothers are adopted. And then they have a young, uh, the youngest one that during Catherine, uh, had after they had adopted the boys, he, he can't remember my name. And he likes to say that on FaceTime. He's like, what's his name again? <laughs> but the other two, they know, they know my name. 
because we were strangers and now we have become family and that's what God does and he chooses to do that. Um, third, third point. Adoption is costly. Adoption is costly. Verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. And we know, like we know where the story goes. He sent forth his son. It says, born of a woman, born of the law, to redeem those who are under the law. How did he redeem them? Well, he went to the cross to redeem us. It was very costly on the, on the part of, of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Each of them paid dearly for our adoption, for your adoption. There are times when, uh, when there are people who want to adopt, but the, the financial cost of it is, is, you know, seems overwhelming. Um, and again, we should talk afterwards if that's keeping you from it, because uh, adoption does not have to cost a billion dollars. Uh, there are ways for it to not do that. But there's the financial cost. There's the, the fact that you're taking, you're taking on like a responsibility for a, a whole new life, you know, and that's going to cost you in, in the long run. Like it's a very financially costly, but also it's very costly emotionally. It impacts your entire life. There's so much. It's, it's, it's just a really big thing. And you take that and uh, like expand that infinitely. And that's what it costs the Lord to adopt you, to adopt me. And I don't know that there is ever an adoption more costly than mine and yours, you know. And so uh, adoption is costly. Even still, God planned it and executed it, right? Even still, God choose to do it, but it's costly. The next point, number four, adoption has specific purposes. Again, verse four, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The specific purpose in him adopting us was to redeem us. The reason why he adopted us is to bring us through the door of hope and to change the the trajectory of our lives. To redeem what should have been a a broken, sinful existence that just imploded into itself like a dying star and spent eternity separated from God. That's what should have happened. And he says, no, I'm going to come and I'm going to, I'm going to take this, this life. I'm going to put it through the door of hope that is Christ and, and redeem all of that and make it what it should be in the first place and change the trajectory of your life. That's the agenda of God's adoption. That's the reason that Jesus came. Um, His agenda is very clear. That he wants to set everything right and he wants to make everything new. And we're included in that. Next point. Adoption is driven by love. Adoption is driven by love. I'm going to break the rule. I'm going to go outside of the book of Galatians for a second, but it's the same author. Uh, Ephesians 1, the end of verse 4 and 5 and 6, it says, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, 
to the praise of his glorious grace with which he's blessed us in the beloved. That God didn't, he didn't have to do that. Like he made a choice, but it wasn't like a, it wasn't like, like when you make like a business decision, you know, or like a wise financial move. It was, it was a choice that was driven by his love for us. To go back to my family situation, uh, when Drew and Catherine were fostering uh, Landon and Hunter, they chose to adopt them because they loved them. Like it wasn't for any other reason. And they said, we, God has like, gifted us. And we have fallen in love with these boys and they have fallen in love with us. And we believe that, that they need to be a part of our family in an official way, like a legal way. Like let's change their names kind of way. And um, that was driven by love. It wasn't driven by any other like kind of motive. Um, and again, you take that and blow it out to infinity and we get to where God is with our love, his love for us and our adoption. Number six, adoption is fully informed. Again to verse four, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. Like Jesus came to the earth a lot of times with it, with you know with adoption, especially international adoptions, but really all adoptions, there come a, there's a point where you you go you go meet the child that you're considering adopting. I think of that as the same as Jesus coming to the earth, born of a woman, born under the law. Think about it this way: Jesus grew up. In Hebrews four, it says that he was tempted in every way, just like we are. But he was without sin. So he experienced all the tensions that we experience. He knows what temptation is. He knows what it is to be betrayed. Um, He knows what it is to be forced uh, with a a decision. And what it means to lean on the Holy Spirit and the strength of God to make the right one. He, He knows everything that we go through. And so Jesus came here, experienced what we're experiencing, what we have experienced... And at some point, uh, we know that he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane and he's like, hey, I don't really want to necessarily be crucified because that's going to be really terrible, but it's about what you want. And if what you want is, for the, is to adopt like all these folks who are a complete mess, then I want to adopt them. Like we need to adopt them. He came in person. He knew exactly what he was getting into. So think about your life. Do you ever feel like sometimes you're like, God, did you know I was going to be a train wreck when you... But he's like, yep, absolutely. Did it anyway. In fact, your train wreck... Directness? Not a word. You? <laughs> that actually just made, made him more motivated. You know? So your adoption is fully informed. He knew what he was getting into. And here's the last thing. And this is more about us. Adoption is a choice that we make as well. I'm not sure how it works with the like little bitty babies. Or even with like Landon and Hunter, they were like three and a year and a half. 
Um, but you take like an, someone that's older, I, I wonder if, if, if you have someone who needs to be adopted, and let's say that they're 10. I, I don't know how this works. Maybe you guys can inform me. But I wonder if they go to them and say, like, is this something you want as well? Like, can you be forced into an adoption on the child side of it? I, I really don't know. But from the godly adoption perspective, God has not come to you and said, I'm going to adopt you whether you want me to or not. He says, I, all, all of these things, I have planned this. I have paid the costs. I've, I've executed everything that needs to happen in order to do this. I have, uh, I've counted the cost of doing this. I've counted the cost of not doing this. I love you. Um, I'm ready to adopt you. Do you want to be adopted by me? That is, it is like we have a say in it. Back in chapter 3, 25 and 26. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. God says yes to us. Then we are able to say yes to him. It's beautiful, right? Mike, this, this incredible God has come to us. says, would you like to go through the door of hope? And we say, no. Some people say no. We can say no. Or we can say, yes, I, I believe that Jesus has come to bring me through the door of hope. To, to bring me from being under a guardian and through my faith in him to cross me into the family of God. To make me a son, to make me a daughter. To change everything about me. To give me a hope in the future. And so here's Paul talking to these people who are all, they're trying to figure out, do we have to keep keeping the rules and all this stuff? And he's like, hey, let's think about it from this perspective. And I feel like we're sitting here today, so easy to get caught up in the, in the mechanics of, of culture and COVID and all the things that we have going on and the, the excessive busyness of our schedules and the demands that are on us and all this kind of stuff. And then sometimes it's easy to also come into church or a community group or a, a conversation with another Christian and we get into things with the Lord, we like make it like it's really easy to make it really complicated and heavy and all this kind of stuff. And, but what if it's as simple as this? What if it's as simple as thinking of that picture of that box on that door and just, just being blessed by the fact that the God of the universe looked at you and said, I want you. Not I'm stuck with you. Not I guess I'll take you two. If I take one, I got to take a bunch of them. Like, no, you, do you want to go through the door? And if you've never said yes to him about going through the door, that can be today, you know. But if you have said yes, to embrace and to like, to like just grab onto the fact that you're a daughter, you know, you're a son. You have a new name. So as I said in the beginning, I really just want us to be encouraged and to be blessed and to, uh, and, and to be humbled. You know, this is not meant to make our egos inflated. <laughs> it's not because you're awesome that God picked you. It's because he, he loves you. And so may this bring whatever it needs to bring to your life this morning.
Let me pray for us as our musicians come. We're just going to sing our way through this in gratitude to the Lord. Father, I'm so thankful. When I, when I think about that, the picture of that box on the door, um, and also think about um, Jesus coming and saying, I am the way. I'm the, he actually said, I'm the door. How about that? <laughs> that there are, is so much wrapped up in that for us. And so I pray that we are able to be encouraged and to be blessed and to be challenged in thinking of ourselves uh, not in some entitled kind of way, but as just humble and grateful children to know that you planned and executed our adoption and that you knew what you were getting into and still said yes. That's such a cost. We thank you for providing a way. And whatever this needs to to do in our hearts and in our minds and uh, just as it permeates through our lives, whatever role this concept needs to play, I pray you help us to grab onto it this morning. And now as we, as we sing and process it a little bit and just tell you thank you, um, I hope that you're blessed to hear your sons and your daughters lift their voices together. We love you and we thank you. And God, I pray this in your name. Amen.